This is Space 101.1 LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening. Welcome to the first episode of Cascade of History of 2024 here on Space 101.1 FM, Magnuson Park. We're here for the next hour. We're live. Uh, this is a great little radio station. It's all volunteer. We are, we're, our studios are in the master-at-arms quarters of the old Navy base that was here, Sandpoint Naval Air Station, in this beautiful historic building here in the north part of Seattle on the shores of historic Lake Washington. I'm Felix Bunnell. We'll spend the next hour or so talking about uh, Pacific Northwest history, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, the old Oregon country. We try to skip around all those different places, not every single place in every episode, but that's in general what we try to hit over the stretch of, I don't know, a few weeks or so. Um, now I've got a couple interviews from the archives tonight that we're, gonna, that we're going to uh, be listening to, plus uh, we'll be speaking to somebody live actually later too. Doing a Sunday night show, you know, it's not always convenient for people to take their time to get on the air with us, so I'm always grateful that guests are willing to talk to us. Um, but I want to dip into the archives for a couple things. Um, but first of all, if, you just, if you've been listening to the radio all evening on Space 101.1 FM, you just heard Music is History, History is Music. Great show. It's on every Sunday night in the hour preceding this show. If you haven't caught it yet, I encourage you to tune in. Uh, the host, DJ Grumpy, picks a theme and goes deep on that, and all sorts of eclectic kinds of music styles and artists spanning many, many decades are played on that show. And then, as you know, once this show ends at 9 o'clock, there's another show that comes on right after. It's called Jay's Radio Hour. And tonight, uh, Jay has more songs he discovered on his trip to England and France, including tunes from two black New Yorkers who saw huge success as a jazz duet in the U.K., plus other Danish, French, and British hot jazz, music hall, and accordion music with a small chance of Indian classical, as they always say with Indian classical, time permitting. Okay, so um, here on Cascade of History, that, that's Jay's radio, that's not till 9 o'clock, so stand by, keep your radio tuned to the station, or if you're streaming device, if you're streaming from far away. Our, our signal is, it doesn't go miles, miles around the area, but you can stream it from pretty much anywhere in the world. Okay, so a bit later on, we're going to uh, hear from Gene Sherrard. He's half of Gene, the duo Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels. They're the guys who took over the Now and Then column from Paul Dorpat at the Seattle Times. Gene's been on this show before, uh, so, so has Clay. They've been on together, known Gene for many, many years. Uh, the, the conversation with Gene is from February 2019. In the wake of that snowstorm we had, it was one of the first big snowstorms we'd had in a couple years, and it was sort of social media seemed to really play a role in how people were talking about that storm and posting pictures. We'll talk to Gene about that, as well as sort of uh, earlier snowstorms and how those were documented by photographers in Seattle. And that, our, that interview was originally conducted for the old Columbia Conversations podcast that I used to host and produce for the Washington State Historical Society. That's the podcast that morphed into Cascade of History. So if you go back in our if you subscribe to our podcast, which if you haven't yet, you should, you can go back in the archives, you can see going, episodes going back four or five years. Uh, Columbia Conversations are what the earliest episodes are from. All right. After we hear from Gene Sherrard and the, uh, about the snowstorm of 2019, February 2019, and the reason we've got that, we're going to talk to Gene, is because of that, the snow that's in the forecast. If you're here in the Seattle area, 
certainly in the British Columbia area, you know that there's this cold air mass that's working its way down from up north. The, there's a de- debate about how far south the cold air is going to get, um, but uh, chances are, I'm hoping we have a nice big snowstorm here later this week. Anyway, um, after we talk to Gene about that, we'll have the fourth and final installment in that 1951 recording from the series Their Name Was Courage, produced by Gloria Chandler for the Seattle Centennial under the auspices of the Junior League. If you're a loyal listener, you know that we last heard an installment of Blackie of Natchez Valley back on December 17th. Uh, the, if you haven't heard that, you go back in the go back to the podcast and you can hear that. You might recall now that Oxen Down is now the official greeting for Cascade of History listeners when we see each other in public or at events or things. So if you see another Cascade of History listener, all you have to say is Oxen Down, and that's that's the repeat back. There's no there's no comeback. You just say Oxen Down. Now um, I don't know if you remember. Um, this is how. The installment ended on December 17th. So installment three ended. I didn't want to hurt anybody or make them mad. They aren't really mad. Papa isn't, and he's captain. He says it was a good thing you gave the women time to cry. <coughs> so I'm sure you've been hanging on the edge of your seat for the, what was that, 14, 21 days, three weeks since we last heard that installment. So we will hear the final installment in Blackie of Natchez Valley. Then we're going to catch up near the end of the show with Janet Way up in Shoreline. It's uh, the south part of, uh, north part of King County, south of the Snohomish County line. She has some exciting news about the historic chapel, uh, the old Navy chapel from the Navy hospital that was there back in the 1940s, built for the World War II effort, and then it became Furcrest. Um, a facility of the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. Anyway, there's all sorts of cool historic buildings there, including this historic chapel, um, which it's open to the public on occasion. We'll we'll hear from Janet about that, but she has some exciting news to share about that. But before we get to all that, um, our first dip into the archives tonight is for highlights from my conversation from 2017 with retired Northern Pacific Railroad guide Jack Christensen. Um, When we did this interview, Jack was 90, about to turn 91. If I'm doing my math correctly, he's now 97. Um, We talked about the old Beltway Railroad line on the east side of Lake Washington that used to cut the kind of the bypass downtown Seattle from Renton all the way up to Woodenville and then to points north for for other taking freight up to Canada. Um, This was for a this was an interview I did for a story I prepared for Cairo News Radio back in 2017. But I've only ever played little bits of this conversation with uh, Mr. Christensen on the air before. And the reason I wanted to play that is, number one, Jack's an interesting guy. I mean, knows more, witnessed more stuff. He went to work for the railroad back in 1944 for the Northern Pacific. Um, He's going to be appearing next Saturday, January 13th, at the Pacific Northwest Railroad Archives down in Burien, a really cool place if you haven't visited yet. um, I'll, I'll put a link on the Cascade of History Facebook page. There's a link there now for this event. It's both in person and online. It's next Saturday the 13th at 11 in the morning. Jack will be in conversation with Gary Tarbox. Gary is very closely involved with that archives. Um, I know he's a Northern Pacific guy, too. I know it's one, that's his favorite railroad. And he's going to be talking with Jack Christensen about Gray's Harbor Passenger Service. Um, so there's all the information you need there to either go in person or to click, click and join online is at the Cascade of History Facebook page. It's a link to the event um, page, the link to the event that the Northwest Railroad Archives created. And if you are involved in history in the Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, and you have events and things going on that you're posting on your Facebook page, please share those at the Cascade of History page. 
we've got hundreds of followers now. It, you know, we're not for everybody. We're just we're we're interested in people who care about the big picture, like all these different things that great organizations are doing in British Columbia and Idaho, Washington, Oregon. There's so many cool things happening. We I can't get to I can get to very few of them where I live here in Seattle, but I like knowing what's going on around the around the Northwest in terms of history and uh, cool programs. So check that out if you haven't joined, haven't liked our Facebook page yet. Please do that. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk. We're going to hear from Jack Christensen. This is conversations. I don't know. It's 13, 14, 15 minutes long, something like that. Let me get to the right part of the board to be able to play that tape. And uh, this is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're on Space 101.1 FM. We're live every Sunday night from 8 to 9 p.m. Pacific time. And here is our interview from 2017 with Jack Christensen. The story I'm working on is about the old Wilburton trestle and how it will fit into the uh, a bicycle and pedestrian path that's going to go through. I'm going to pause that for one second because um, one thing I had to do, I don't know if my interview techniques have improved in seven years or six years, uh, probably not, but the equipment I have is much better now. When I did this interview back in 2017, I had my side of the conversation was being recorded with a crummy little mic and it wasn't really amplified. So I went back through the file and, and boosted the sound, boosted the volume on my questions. So it, it's a little wonky at times. But anyway, just listen to what Jack says. He says some great stuff. Through Bellevue here in a couple years. Oh. The trestle's still intact, huh? Yeah, it is. And I was wondering, you must you must have memories of what it was like to ride across that trestle up in the cab of the locomotive? Oh, yeah, I've been a lot of trips, over hundreds, actually. So what did it look like as you're dry, coming north or coming south across that trestle, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago? What could you see? Well, there wasn't as much, uh, there weren't any, uh, any buildings, you know, uh, about a mile north of uh, the trestle, or less than a mile, uh, there was a sign that said Mid Lakes. And, uh, but there were no buildings. There were a couple of farmhouses, maybe, or small buildings. But Bellevue, as we know it now, just didn't simply didn't exist. It was open farmland. When in the steam days, and of course, gradually, uh, buildings appeared, but I can't really put timelines on how construction, you know, uh, proceeded there. When you when you went across that trestle, was was going across there kind of interesting or special, or was it just another part of the trip? Yeah, well, you know, uh, there was, as I recall, there was, a, there was a trainman's walk on one side, but the other side, you're just looking, you're, you're just like suspended in air, you know, and I don't know what exactly the height of that thing is. It must be 80 or 90 feet anyway. Uh, and I do believe that they uh, it, uh, they removed some of the vents and put a, didn't they put a beam in the, for an underpass? And, well, I think they modified it sometime, and, but it's all rather vague in my mind. Uh, yeah, I, I think they, they put in that underpass thing back in the 1960s. I was just curious, and you've, you've answered the question sort of kind of what it was, what it felt like to go across there and be able to look out. Each well, side. Yeah, yeah, it was just like uh, those trestles are like uh, almost like being suspended in air. The Wilburton trestle was fairly solid, as I recall, and I don't recall a, it might have had a 20 or 25 mile speed restriction, but you'd have to get into some. Better railroad history. Uh, uh, as I recall, in both steam and diesel, uh, the whole subdivision from Renton to Woodenville was, I believe, 30 miles an hour. But there may have been a 20 mile speed on that bridge, and I cannot recall. 
if there was any restriction, but it wasn't much if there was one. And uh, when you were talking a moment ago, you said that north of the bridge there was some kind of sign, and as you were saying that, your phone made kind of a beep or something, so I didn't hear that. So can you tell me that part again about what was a mile north of the trestle? Well, it was a sign that said Midnight's, which was actually the main, whatever that 8th Avenue, the main street east-west through Bellevue, and that's all there was. It was just a, road, a country road with a sign that said Midlake's. That's all there was of Bellevue, and it was open fields in the steam days, and then gradually buildings appeared. It was a spur at Wilburton, and I forget what we used it for. Uh, just barely off the trestle a short distance, there was a spur. And uh, I don't know about any sightings there in the early days. But, uh, I remember going up to there in steam, you know, it's a, uh, there, there, there was that spur just north of the Wilburton trestle. Nobody's trestle was strange. They had they had them on the North Bend line too, and, and some of those were just stubbed into the clay. They weren't really driven in with piling. They were uh, the trestle would get out of line. They'd realign uh, the track would get crooked. They'd straighten the track and leave the trestle a little bit crooked. But the, the Wilburton trestle was pretty solid, and uh, I don't recall any you know any apprehension in crossing it. It was just part of the trip. And what do you think, what year do you think you made your first crossing, and what year do you think you made your last crossing on that trestle? Well, uh, I went firing in November of 44, and I probably crossed, we had to make student trips, and I think one of them was north, so we probably, late 1944 would be the earliest I went over, and then, uh, as far as the last trip, uh, it's kind of vague because uh, I was an officer on the railroad for seven years in Minnesota and Montana from 65 to 72, and I came back to work as an engineer. And they didn't use the line much for after the merger for uh, north-south traffic. Everything went over the Great Northern, and uh, that line became just a line of service the uh, customers. Uh, Safeway had a big uh, distribution center there for years, and uh, you could probably look up about when that thing closed down. But I do remember uh, off the extra list catching uh, switch jobs up there, or local, sort of a local freight job. But I'm pretty vague about the last time. So sometime in the 1980s, though, it sounds like, probably. I would imagine that. Uh, I have to do a little research on that. Most of my colleagues are all retired or dead, you know. And it's, uh... <laughs> I can understand that. How old are you, sir, if I might ask? Well, uh, in about two, less than two weeks of the 16th, I'm going to be 91. Uh, yeah. Well, I just, I just passed my driver's test with no restrictions. I don't even need glasses. So I'm good till 97. Uh, Wednesdays I go to Burien and work in the archives. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, and that's a great place to do research on some of this stuff. And uh, most of the guys didn't, didn't work on the railroad, but uh, uh, there's a lot of middle-aged guys down there doing various research. We've got a lot of material. And it's a good place to dig around with history, you know, dig for things. 
to me, in my old age, it's almost having a fan club. I mean, you kind of bask in the reflected glory of the old railroad. But, uh, well, this, of course, was Northern Pacific, but uh, uh, that was an interesting line up to Sumas. We had a lot of big tonnage over that in Canada, especially coming down. Uh, a lot of empties going north and loads coming down. But we would have to, uh, we had a hill between, uh, well, between Arlington and Snohomish with a one and a half centigrade. You can ride that on a bike now, which we do quite a bit. Uh, and between uh, Snohomish and Woodenville, that was uh, almost 2%, 1.9. But uh, we ran a lot of tonnage and they'd, they'd have to reduce tonnage for these hills sometimes. And, uh, we get enormous tonnages out of Sumas certain times and certain conditions. I know the, the trestle was part of the belt line, and I know it, what peop, very, very few people on the east side have any idea there was ever the belt line running through the east side of the lake. What is it, could you tell me, for someone who would know nothing about it, how would you explain the role it played in the road around here? Well, uh, uh, the belt line, I think it was built in 1910, if I'm not mistaken, fairly late. Uh, the MP had their line out of Seattle up around Cape Ballard and Fremont, and, you know, with the Burt Gilman. And uh, there was quite a hill there at the university up to Keith. And, uh, but uh, they needed to compete with the Great Northern for Canadian traffic. They had this, this line up from uh, Woodenville up to Sumas that they bought, I think, in 1890. Uh, I'd have, you'd have to double-check that stuff, but... Uh, the Belt Line gave them a freight. Auburn was the main freight terminal for transcontinental freight. They made that in 1913. They built the yard there and made that the western terminus. And that's when they broke the trains, the long east stuff up and for north and south and all these places. And they, they needed a way to get around Seattle congestion and the dominance of the Great Northern in Seattle, I guess. And the line up around uh, where the Burke Gilman is now was a kind of a crooked thing and little drawbridges. So uh, this belt line uh, gave them a kind of a bypass for north-south traffic up to Canada. And, of course, they had uh, they had the line uh, from Homish, Arlington. They had a branch from, Har from uh, Hartford to uh, up to uh, uh, Bennett Falls and... Uh, uh, Monte Cristo, of course, the Monte Cristo line. That's a story all by itself. So uh, it became the main freight line north to Canada for us. And we had passenger service from Seattle via the Burke, where the Burke Hillman is, to Woodenville and up to up to Canada. That up into the 1920s. But you you have to research that. Uh, I'm a little vague on that stuff. No, you, you put it very well. I mean, it sounds like it's almost the same way, same reason they built 405 back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, uh, right in the 1960s, we had a train out of Auburn, 675 and 6, and that was a traditional train. It had run out of Everett many years ago in the 20s, but it came out of Auburn, and uh, that was diesel-ized in the, in the 60s. And then in the mid-60s, they put on a second train that uh, went to Bellingham and back. Uh, they had two crews on that. That ran uh, six days a week, uh, 9.31 and 2. Uh, 
675 went to work at Auburn around 7.30 in the morning, and 9.30, uh, uh, 9.31 about 9 o'clock, and 9.31 work, did some local work, then went from Wickersham to Bellingham and tied up, and then they came down the next day, but they uh, came down earlier in the morning. 675, we got up to Sumas around 1 or 2, and they switched to four or five, and they went to work late the next morning, 11 a.m., and they didn't leave till about four or five. They did their switching, and that was a night job coming down. So actually, we had the two three trains a day over the Beltline, 675, 931, and we had either a Woolley or Arlington local. And the Everett turn went up to Everett every day, uh, six days a week. Up and back, and that went up in the wee hours of the morning. I worked that a lot. Uh, went to work around midnight, 1 a.m. at Auburn, and got up around Everett around 5. And then they went they went to work on our rest. We came in and got, got in around 10 o'clock at night back to Auburn, and we did that three days a week. So you, you actually had four trains a day each way. And no block signals, and no siding, really these. They had very few what they call meets uh, because one train would be off the segment or another one went on. It was only 20 miles long. But you can imagine the amount of traffic we had there in the 1960s, plus the switching jobs. Yeah, How many, like, um, how many cars would a, a big train in the 60s on the Beltline have on it? Well, up to Thubat, uh, it was mostly empties going north, and 100-car trains were uh, not un uncommon. You might have a handful of loads and 90 or 90 empties. Coming back, uh, we'd get 12,000 tons out of Sumas, 100, 100, when they, uh, I know when they, uh, they had some cold outs up in Vancouver, and they collapsed, and a lot of coal going to Spain was detoured at one time for a few, for some months. So we'd have enormous tonnages, and the 100 cars were not unusual. Uh, it might run a little less. And this was a, this whole territory, there wasn't a block signal on it. It was all dark. You operated by train orders and, uh, um, you know, uh, non-block signal rules. Tell me what a block signal is. Well, the, the block signal was actuated by the train, uh, the metal of the axle shunts between the rails. And that's if, if a block, if, if there's a train in the block, you get a red semaphore, you know, or, or color light. It's red, and then the approaching block would be yellow. It's actuated by the train. Of course, our centralized traffic control depends on that, too. The, the blocks, the, the, it, it, it isn't like a traffic light. It's actuated by a train. I mean, if there's a train in the block, the signal entering that block will be red. If there's a train two blocks ahead, the next block back will be yellow as a warning. You know, you won't get a clear signal until you got at least two unoccupied blocks. And the blocks usually ran a mile and a half to two and a half miles in length. And the, the faster, the more modern the blocks are longer and longer now. And uh, uh, but. Uh, in centralized traffic control, uh, the trains actuate the block signals, but the dispatcher controls the switches. Now, this, our whole system is done by fiber optics from a big room down in Fort Worth, Texas. The dispatcher touches a screen with his pencil, 
where there's a raised pencil and the uh, switch goes over, they touch the screen again and the signal lights up. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating business. Those 100 car coal trains coming from Sumas, how many engines would you have? Well, it didn't have the tonnage. Uh, the diesels were rated at so many tons, you know, depending on. Uh, if you, we, we, I don't remember having any solid coal trains, but uh, uh, like uh, between, uh, uh, like between uh, Sohomish up on Maltby Hill, there were 1,100 tons a unit. So if you had a four-unit diesel, you could haul about 4,500 tons. Uh, uh, and if, uh, uh, like coming south, if so we had over tonnage. Uh, we would reduce an edge cone just south of Arlington along siding. I think it's still there. And uh, we would reduce tonnage, you know. One quick question. The siding or the spur that goes from Woodenville off the belt line? Yeah. Is that used for mainly, you know? Well, that went to Redmond. That was the North Bend branch. Ah. Went up through Issaquah and up through Preston and Falls City. Ended up uh, North Bend and then out to Tanner, which was the end of the line. They were going to build that line because the NT had uh, kind of jilted Seattle, you know, they were going to build a line to connect over to eastern Washington so Seattle would have their own railroad. Then the Great Northern came along, and they ran out of money at North Bend. But uh, that was a busy, that North Bend branch, we had a lot of business on that, and that's a whole story by itself. Thank you so much for taking time. Okay, well, uh, send me an email, let me know who you are, and uh, like I say, i got a good memory, but it's getting awful short. Thank you, Mr. Christensen. Nice speaking with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Jack Christensen and phone interview with me back in 2017. Um, and he is, uh, boy, I could I could listen to that guy talk about the specifics, uh, details of the different railroad routes, where the tracks were, what they served, and the, how, how the whole thing was put together. Guy's just a, a treasure, just how much he witnessed firsthand, how much he knows. And so this coming Saturday, January 13th, he will be presenting a program at 11 o'clock in the morning at the Pacific Northwest Railroad Archives in Burien. There's in-person slots, and there's also a, a Zoom version of it as well. So go to our Facebook page, the Cascade of History Facebook page, and look at the events there. You'll see information about that. I think there's a link to click on to either sign up for the Zoom thing or to, to follow the Zoom program when it runs next Saturday. Um, I, you know, he's talking about the Beltline and the Wilburton Trussell, which is still there in, in Bellevue. They're gradually connecting all those pieces of uh, railroad right-of-way together and paving them and creating this this east east trail or east rail or I think it's called east trail. I wanted them to call it the Beltline Trail, but nobody nobody listened to me. Um, but uh, I think someday that there'll actually be access to walk across that uh, Wilburton Trestle. I've never walked across it, of course. I did. I went across it a few times on the dinner train. Maybe boy, it's been probably 15 or 20 years since I did that. So anyway, uh, lots of great railroad history. We we always try to cover railroad history on this show. It's 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 a uh, it's a weakness or it's a uh, it's just I don't know. If you had to explain it, it's it may, maybe it doesn't make any sense. But if you love railroad history and that kind of minutia and detail, like what Mr. Christensen was sharing, then. You've come to the right place. All right, this is Cascade of History. I am Felix Bennell. We're live on Space 101.1 FM, uh, coming to you from the Master at Arms quarters at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station on the shores of historic Lake Washington. About halfway through the show here, we're uh, going to get now to our conclusion, the exciting conclusion. Well, maybe not the exciting conclusion, but the concluding conclusion of Blackie of Natchez Valley. Um, this, uh, there's one thing I like about this particular conclusion 
ties up all the parts of the plot and everything, and there's some some uh, some resolution. But then there's sort of this little promise toward the end for drivers and modern day uh, drivers crossing the Cascade Mountains, and how Blackie Blackie might be there to help you. So here, without further delay, on Cascade of History, the final installment, Blackie of Natchez Valley. And so the wagon train moved on toward the summit of the mountains. Everyone was happy, except Hugh. He trudged along beside the train alone, not even wanting to be with Blackie. No one except Abby seemed to have any time for him. Hugh, wait for me. I want to tell you something. Hugh, I asked Papa what was the matter. He said when everyone else was giving all they had, you put Blackie ahead of the good of the train. Even Blackie had more sense than I had. He ran away from me, back to the train. But, Hugh, he said the people would forget and things would be all right for you again, someday. Two days later, the Biles-Longmire train reached the summit meadows. The people feasted on venison. The children ran wildly through the meadows and all the people laughed and were happy, except Hugh's parents and Hugh. He wanted to throw himself in his mother's arms and cry his heartache away, and the way she looked at him, he knew she wanted that too. But somehow he couldn't. He just stayed by himself. Even Blackie didn't go near him. Blackie stayed alone too. He didn't go near the other oxen. He ate only a little of the rich grass. Most of the time he stood in one place, as if he knew he had no right to be there and wasn't happy about it. And then... The scouts came back, faces gray and worried. Quiet! Quiet! Quiet, everybody. The scouts have just reported that we face a bad situation. If we turn back, we'll be caught by winter, and only a very few, if any, will reach Walla Walla alive. So we have to go on. But we are faced with a cliff 900 feet down to the valley floor. We haven't enough rope to let the wagons down such a great cliff. We'll have to kill oxen, cut up their hides, and make rawhide rope. It's the only way. Kill the oxen, we can't. We can't make a settlement without them. You'll, you'll not kill not mine. Nor mine. Wait. Captain, you can have Blackie. You. You're willing to have Blackie be killed? Yes, sir. To save the train, I am. He'll make more rawhide rope than any ox who ever lived. The people reached the tiny settlement of Seattle safely. Hugh and his parents and Abby have long since died. And Blackie... Well, they say his spirit still lives on Natchez Pass. If your car should break down on that mountain highway, the spirit of Blackie will hover over you, worrying, wishing he could give you a tow. Hugh was right. Blackie was a very great ox. I probably should have given a parental warning about the uh, the way that story ended. I should have given you some heads up, some advance notice that, that we were going to be discussing um, slaughtering oxen to create rope as part of that story. I don't know. I, I didn't see that coming. I don't know if you did, but boy. 
those uh, plucky settlers uh, finding their way down uh, Natchez Pass thanks to uh, Blackie being sacrificed to make uh, rawhide oxen, oxen rawhide rope. All right. Well, in that, on, on that happy note, uh, this is uh, Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, of course. Uh, coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk to Janet Way. She's going to be joining us live uh, with some exciting news about the Old Navy Chapel at Fircrest up in Shoreline. And uh, after that, uh, at 9 o'clock, Jay's, Jay's Radio Hour will kick off. Jay's got a bunch of more discs from his recent trip overseas and uh, lots of stuff to share. And, of course, uh, time permitting, some Indian classical music as uh, part of the show tonight as well. And now uh, here's our conversation with the photographer and writer and just general all-around good history guy, Gene Sherrard, about the uh, phenomenon of snow and social media back in February of 2019 here on Cascade of History. It seems like, I mean, obviously, and this is kind of probably clearly obvious, the further you go back in time, the fewer images there are of particular snowstorms, where in, in 1880, there's maybe a, maybe 10 or maybe a dozen, and a bunch yeah, more in 1916 many. and everything. But it seems like with the, the big snow of 2019, more photographs than I've ever seen of any Seattle snowstorm in the history of mankind. Um, and the, yeah. so, so tell me, tell me, talk to me a little bit about the number of photographs, like just from what you've observed on social media and then what you've done in terms of the blog with Paul about the earlier snowstorms, about the difference between the, the sheer quantity of photos for this most recent storm. Well, of course what we have now is, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, maybe more, we've got, we've got an army of photographers out there and everyone is taking pictures of everything. And so... As, as I was down in the market, because I'm, you know, I'm, I, I make an effort to, 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 to take a record of the latest snowfall from certain positions, because I'm repeating photographs that were taken long ago. And whenever, I, uh, whenever I'm out there, it's, what's astonishing to me is to see the number of people with their cell phones up taking pictures. And you know that this is happening all over the world. So that's just a, that's a phenomenon of, of, of our uh, shifting technology in that we're now a world of photographers. So, yeah, we, we see, you know, from 1880 when, when there were a, a handful of photographers in downtown Seattle and a few of them would get out in the snow with their equipment and take a few photographs, as you say, you know, maybe a dozen. Today, we, I'd be su- surprised if there weren't hundreds of thousands of photos of, of our snow event or more. It's just, it's almost incalculable. So I, I'm the, the, uh, I think the role of, a, of, of someone going out and taking pictures today is, is, is to find, you know, my role is to find something significant about, about, the snow in particular rather than just choose a generic photo so it's it's but it is interesting to see how uh and this this is all over the world of course you know there's you can you can poke a pin in any section of the map and on the planet and there's likely a a thousand photos taken from that perspective but uh as far as the snows in seattle go when we have an event like this which is in its own way, um, unique. Uh, I think we didn't we break uh, at least 50 years of records with this last snowfall. Uh, it it seems like, um, of course, people are going to be out celebrating it in photographs and sending them all over the world. So that's 
that's uh, and and that's to me that's just kind of delightful. You know, I, I I'm I'm happy to be a participant in that in that recording, and uh, so the next process is we have to choose the good ones. <laughs> what really captured? You know what I mean? Like now we've got to start editing, and, and, and which of these photos is gonna is gonna really evoke the the uh, the snow as it as it happened in 2019? And you know, it, that, so that's our next chore is to is to winnow and uh, and find some great ones. But there are a lot out there that are delightful. I mean, think of the historian like like you know like. Paul or you or me looking at photos of the snowstorm of 1880 and the, the few you have to sift through. Think about someone 100 years from now looking at the snow of 2019. Imagine what they will have to sift through if that stuff still exists on hard drives or, or social media or somehow. That's just mind-boggling to me. It is. And it's, it's it, it, and I just, I, this is something I, I really can't, uh, uh, I, I don't think it's fathomable. I mean, how do we gather and then wander through this astonishing amount of of information and i think this is true of 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 snow photos and and photography in general and uh there's there's you know at this point we we don't have the editorial winnowing process which you know used to be conducted by by media by newspapers and you know that that no longer exists there's no there's no one saying this is good and this isn't and we're going to save this and we're not going to save that so it's for future historians for someone 100 years from now it's the the at one and the same time the the uh, the amount of material is going to be so staggering it 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 will probably overwhelm uh uh, you know, there'll probably have to be some kind of artificial intelligence aspect to this, where you can you can wander through all of these uh, selections of photos with specific. You, you want to look at a picture from a specific angle on a specific street. You might just tap that into your to your uh, to your AI and say, uh, you know, this is what I want, and you'll find it. And and uh, but I. I think that will be that is our chore today is how to how to get through the vast quantity of material that's just kind of it's a it's a waterfall and and each of us are are mere pipettes and <laughs> how can we process all this stuff so it's I'm sure it's going to be just as uh, even even more of a uh, of a of a quandary in the future looking through this vast quantity of material and and you're right going back a hundred years we can you know whether it's the seattle snow in in 1880 where there's only a dozen images or, or the seattle fire the year before uh year or nine years later it's it's it, you only have a handful of images so it kind of makes it, it it makes each one a little more precious and what does that say about how we value images uh, today, when in place of a dozen, we have a million, you know, how, so I think we have to recreate a system that allows us to evaluate what's, what's significant. And, 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 and I just, I, I, I can only do that for myself at this point. Uh, there's just, uh, there's, there's so much out there. So. Other thing that was cool about this storm, um, a couple things. 
all this stuff you know in in previous storms and part of my thesis is, is that this big snow of 2019 this is the first big snow in Seattle of the social media era. We've had some smaller storms in the last decade, but this is the first one where 99% of people have a smartphone in hand and 90% of people are on social media and sharing pictures. And I think that, that makes this storm very different from the one of 2008, where very few people had that kind of technology in their pocket, which I think is really cool. I think this, this makes this storm historic for reasons beyond the amount of snowfall or the number of days the city was shut down. This is like, this is the first one. And, and sure, in the social media age in the last 10 plus years or so, other cities of the world where snow happens every year, people have been taking pictures. But snow means more in Seattle because it is so rare and when it comes, it's so constricting and just shuts everything down. So it kind of, it makes this storm very special to me. And the fact that people are sharing stuff in real time on social media, whether it's uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, that, that was, that's never happened before for me. Usually it's like, You'll see some pictures a few days later, or there's something in the newspaper. But this, there was like real-time coverage of, of subtle differences in amounts of snowfall and kinds of snow all over Puget Sound. And that was just, I couldn't take my eyes away from that. Yeah, it, that, that was indeed wonderful. So you'd see, uh, you know, I mean, these are, the Northwest is made up of microclimates in any case. But we saw an example of this uh, just on Facebook in which people from, uh, from all over the area were posting their instant reflections on and and the, the amount of snow they had out out their back door and and that could change you know within a five mile radius so that's the other thing we have is it gives us uh, an overall record of of exactly what was happening at any given minute during these these snowfalls and of course the other part of it is with Seattle snows is uh, they almost always fall and melt on the roads, laying down that slick layer of ice. <laughs> and so it's, and I can attest to this going out and trying to take pictures of snow for the last 20 years or so, that layer of ice is, is uh, makes, makes any kind of travel, even if it's under a, a, the secondary layer of snow, it, it makes it all all travel through snow in Seattle more treacherous than anywhere else because of that first melting mm -hmm. and then the snow laying on over the melting. So with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people taking photos, uh, we we can experience the snow of the region and the subjective impressions of individuals looking at snow out their back door or on their front porch. And uh, and not have to go traveling over that incredibly <laughs> treacherous layer of ice. So that's I think that's that's another advantage. I, lives were saved by by uh, the uh, the sheer numbers of of cell phone images that ended up online. Yeah, no yeah. one had to go out in search of it unless you were going <laughs> sledding, and then you're just uh, you're just having a whale of a time. But in that, I, I would agree that's. Uh, that is a uh, you know that's 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 a big part of it is we can we can now focus in on on the minutia and the individual uh, joys that each of us experience <clears throat> rather than depending on uh, you know the the moderator to to tell us what we're looking at and and how we can perceive it. Every one of us contributes to this. And it becomes a, a sort of a, and I think that's part of the ritual now is with social media, we're all 
given the tools to interpret our our experiences of something so unique as a as a massive Seattle snow. Yeah. And and for me the iconic image of this snowstorm is a ruler stuck in somebody's backyard snowdrift. And that was like I saw I can't tell you how many dozens of images I saw from all over Puget Sound of different kinds of rulers or yardsticks in some cases stuck in a backyard snowdrift. That's like that's the iconic image for me that sticks out from this storm. That is that is it. And I and I uh I, I love the other one I loved was actually uh, just a, I, I think a, a found image of someone uh, going out to a parking lot. I think it was in North Seattle. And just as the snow began, just in an empty parking lot, spinning around in their in their car and, and creating <laughs> pretty glorious. It was it was like a flower design, <laughs> but it was it was kind of marvelous. And I and and these are. You know, it's these are all expressions of of delight. And I was thinking at the time, you know, if we were anywhere, if we were outside of uh, our particular general weather pattern, if we're in Juneau, Alaska, or if we're on the East Coast, it's really it, it's not that special. But it's just that you know where we are, this is so rare and delightful that uh, I think everybody just steps outside and wants to capture it. It's a. It's like uh, it's our equivalent of of an eclipse. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it is. We we we're, we're it arrives. Except we can't predict it with any with any regularity. So it's even it's even more uh, unique in Seattle when we when we walk outside and and there's a foot of snow on the ground. It's it's uh, it's kind of delightful. And isn't it wonderful how all the neighbors come out. How in in winter time when most of us are are staying warm inside, uh, avoiding the rains, and you know we may wave to our neighbors. Isn't it, I, I, the, when when snow falls, these are where your neighborhood memories are made as well. So you have all you have this passel of neighbors and the kids and everyone's out there uh, sledding and throwing snowballs and 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 you know behaving in uh, in, in that wonderful and, and childlike fashion that that uh, uh, that we've many of us left behind and then the <laughs> snow brings it right back out yeah I feel like I'm friendlier when it snows I say hi to people more I'm walking past them on the way to the coffee shop or whatever it's a little more it's like it's we're, we're all sharing this community experience it's like we're all in this together and hey I, I feel a little more comfortable just saying hi to anybody which is wish I could be like that every day but oh well <laughs> <laughs> You, you've nailed it. That's the, you know, that's, that is, um, there are, I think, I think these are moments of carnival in which, um, in which all of those, the, the usual social barriers fall. And when we find those moments in a community and in, in a city, you know, we, we, as I say, usually they're scheduled. Uh, it, it's, it can be a Mardi Gras, but that's the, I think that's what happens with the Seattle snow is it's an unexpected holiday. And the aspect of carnival is that, that all bets are off, all rules are suspended. Nobody's going to work <laughs> and we're out there and we're just going to play. And the, the, I guess that's part of the delight of, of a Seattle snow is, is that we, we, we know that, um, 
in a certain sense, nothing formal or official is expected of us. We can't, it's, it's mission impossible if we're trying to get to work. Huh. And in fact, isn't it wonderful when the Weather Service says, don't even bother, <laughs> don't go to work, stay home. Are you nuts? <laughs> You know, and it and it gives us all an excuse to play. Yeah. It's just uh, and and get out there and take pictures because then we're you know we're capturing these these memories of play. So yeah, and it's um yeah. the one thing I noticed that it's uh all, and the way you describe it as a Mardi Gras or as a a, a a unscheduled holiday. That's why it fits in so perfectly to social media with all these moments of these visual moments that are you know make everything everything looks different. You're standing out in front of your house, but it looks very different from it did the way it did two days ago. And I wonder, part of me wonders if like, say the next big storm, snowstorm in Seattle is scheduled for a decade from now as they typically are, will people still be as excited? Because this, this seemed like people went nuts with their cameras and with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and stuff, just because it was just all these, all these moments that people hadn't had in Seattle in the past decade. Um, I wonder if, they'll, if that, that wonder or that, that, will, that interest in sharing things on these platforms will still be there for this next big storm, whether it's five, 10 or 15 years from now. Any, any thoughts on that? You know, I I guess I'd say that whatever social media becomes in the next 10, 15 years, we're, we're, we're never going to lose the, uh, the joy of direct experience. And the, the interpretation of that experience may change. We may come to understand it in different ways, and we, we may communicate it in different ways. But the snow is rare enough that... Uh, if it doesn't happen for 10 years, which it probably won't in this, to this degree or more, uh, the, the experience of, of, of change and the reinterpretation of the landscape in which everything is covered with, you know, with, with this kind of clean white blanket, that's so unique. It's, uh, have you ever seen the artist Christo at work? You know, his, his, his big drapings of bridges and, and reinterpreting enormous sections of landscape, islands and bridges. Uh, that's sort of what snow does uh, to Seattle, because we, we don't see it that often. So in that sense, I think that I think because of its rarity and because of the way it momentarily, only usually for a, a few days at most, alters our landscape. I think we'll always be looking at that with excited and fresh and childlike eyes, and uh, and I, I I can't imagine a world in which um, uh, social media will blunt that. In fact, I think this is what pulls us, you know, into direct contact with the with a, a, the world outside. And I I think Seattleites are particularly susceptible to to those kinds of direct contacts. Well, Gene Sherrard, thank you so much for sharing your insights about snow and social media and photography in Seattle. This has been just, this is a conversation that's almost as fun as playing out in the snow. Thanks, Felix. Gene Sherrard, I spoke with him after, in the wake of the big snow of early February 2019, which, uh, again, the first big snow of the social media era in Seattle. So we'll see what happens if we get a big storm later this week, which I've got my fingers crossed, hoping we get... uh, get our fair share of snow. It's been what, I guess we've had one or two little storms in the last five years, but we're, we're due for a big one probably. But I don't want to jinx it, but maybe we jinx it by playing that interview with Gene Sherrard. All right, uh, we've got just a few more minutes left in the show here. I want to bring uh, Janet Way on the 
live history line here. Let's see if we can press all the right buttons and get Janet on board. Janet, can you hear me? Hi there. Yes. Thank you, Felix. Hey, thanks for taking time on a Sunday night to join us here on Cascade of History. Where are we speaking to you from this evening? Oh, hi. Uh, I'm at home, so... Oh, terrific. Okay. I've been away all day, but I'm home now. All right. Terrific. Now, I saw uh, you you shared some information on social media about this project you've been working on. You and I met uh, maybe three or four years ago when you were working on the the chapel at Fircrest, uh, which is the old naval hospital up in Shoreline, and there's this gorgeous chapel... Um, tell what what is the chapel? Tell people what the chapel actually is before we reveal the exciting news. Okay. Uh, well, it, the chapel was built um, on the naval hospital grounds in nineteen. Uh, it was it was imagined in nineteen forty three by Captain J T Boone, uh, Commander Boone. He was the commander of the base, and um, he envisioned a a chapel, an, an interdenominational chapel that was freestanding. That was up and away from the barracks that where all the people who were recovering from injuries. He wanted it up in the in the forest because he thought that would be a place of respite. And so he uh, had a groundbreaking in May uh, 28, 1944, and they completed it by November. So it was very fast. Wow! Done, but it, but it's, <laughs> it's there, I guess there's a war on. You, you can't really delay anything when there's a war on. Got to get, get that chapel right. built. Okay. Right. Yeah, and so um, so that uh, and it's been there ever since, and it's in in use all, all frequently. They have services on uh, Sundays, and they have uh, you know ceremonies, and sometimes it's used for. Um, concerts or small uh, gatherings, but it's, it's been used uh, all throughout. Now it's, of course, it's Burkhurst School, which is a um, home for uh, disabled people and uh, was built uh, back in the uh, 60s mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Governor Rosalini, actually. He told me himself. <laughs> he was proud that he... Good old Al. Good old Governor right. Al. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, um, anyway, so it's changed hands from from the Navy to uh, King County um, and then uh, the state for um, the TV sanitarium, which moved from Furland, the original Furland over here. And then uh, uh, in the 60s, it uh, was part of it was became the Furcrest School. And then now it's, it's all it's all Furcrest except for the state health lab, which is on the southwest corner. So, um, so, but it, but it's it's been used by by Fircrest, um residents, staff, and families, and also other folks. Too. Yeah, and and, and it's, it's available for people to just go walk over there and see it. It's a it's, it's a gorgeous gorgeous building, and the setting is incredible. And it, I mean, you can sort of feel like you're really far away from the city. I mean, it's Shoreline isn't right. exactly an urban area, but it's it's pretty urbanized. But we, in, in the area around that chapel and inside the chapel, it feels like you're many many miles away from all that. And so what's the big exciting news with, with, with the chapel? Okay. Well, um, with the help of Four Culture, who gave us uh, a couple of grants, uh, we got it landmarked, and then it was placed on the State Register of Historic Places. And then just this last week, I got the news that it is now on the National Register of Historic Places. That, congratulations. And I, I know you've been working hard on that for a long time. And that is that's a that's a significant honor because, you know, there's many buildings on the city registers and county registers and state the state register. But to get to the national register, that is a that's a real accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. We're, we're very excited, very proud. And we'd like to have a um, 
uh, a real celebration, you know, uh, kind of like Captain Boone did in 1944 at the groundbreaking. He had this huge celebration there with, as, as you know, with, uh, you know, bands and lots of people from the Navy. So, so I have to call the Navy and invite them and put Absolutely. together a, an event. And I, I'd like to invite you and anyone else. Who would oh, like to yeah. Keep, attend. keep us so, posted. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and just the quick version. I mean, the, the Navy hospital was there for all these uh, wounded sailors who were coming home from overseas. So this was this was a this was sort of a big wartime deal there. But when did the Navy actually step away from what became Fircrest? Uh, I think it was uh, let's see, nineteen would have been forty six. Okay. Or so some sometime in there, and then they had a you know requisition it the everything to to the county actually Got and it. the state. And yeah. so, and then, uh, and then, you know, as, as I said, it was the TV sanitarium. And the thing is, a lot of people uh, have a in living memory about the TV sanitarium and their their relatives who were uh, there, uh, you know, recovering from TV. And so, so it it really um, it, it really does have um, a meaning to a lot of people. Yeah. And so, one of the things that we would also like to do is, I would also like to uh, look up. Um, if we can get any information from the Navy um, on anyone, anyone who might have actually passed away, you know, because of their illness or their injuries and, you know, as a memoriam. And we would like to, the next thing we would like to do is have a museum there at, at Burcrest. Um, it's in, it's in a transition right now with the master plan. And so there's a lot of other buildings that are still um, eligible for the national register, but we'd like to just preserve one of them potentially for a museum yeah. and um and you know really uh, put together some displays that um explain to people what what this is about because most people drive by and they don't really know what what it what it is what that place is and so um and it's, it's really just about the most significant historic Absolutely. Well, thanks for all your thanks for all your hard work on behalf of that community landmark, and now on the National Register of Historic Places. Congratulations on that, and do keep us posted about whatever your plans are for a, some kind of event or a larger history project. I think that that's just a terrific example of what people can do if they put their mind to it and really make their community stronger through old buildings and landmarks and stuff. I love it. I, I'm sold. <laughs> Congratulations, Jen. Thanks for making time to join us on Cascade of History tonight. Thank you, Felix. Talk, All right. talk to you soon. Okay, Happy New Year. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Janet Way, congratulations to her for doing all that great work to make that happen there at the old uh, chapel, at the old uh, Naval Hospital there in Shoreline. Well, we're fast reaching the end of another episode of Cascade of History. Um, if you uh, want to hear this episode again, it'll be posted shortly at our uh, podcast page. It's, you can go to uh, just search Cascade of History. It's on pretty much every podcast platform imaginable. And we have the whole backlog there going back to when we first came on the air back in September of 2022. Uh, we'll be back next uh, Sunday night with a whole other lineup of guests. And I want to thank Jack Christensen for talking to me uh, back in 2017, Gene Sherrard for talking to me back in 2019, and uh, Janet Way for joining us live on the phone tonight. Um, and if there's, uh, if there's a big snowstorm this week, take pictures of it and share pictures. And look at, old, look at all the old pictures people will post from the big storms of the past. That was the other cool thing about that 2019 uh, storm five years ago was that there were all sorts of uh, pictures came out of the woodwork from the big snow of February 2016. That was a – no, excuse me, not 2016. February 1916. And uh, there's just all sorts of great pictures that are shared whenever the, the snow falls around here. So – Have a good week and join us here again on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM and streaming at space101fm.org. 
I'm Felix Bunnell for Cascade of History, and we'll see you next Sunday night. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.